I'm here today with uh, Bill Taylor. He has such a fascinating story and a fascinating book called On Full Automatic, 13 Months in Vietnam. When he was 18 years old, he had a, uh, a, an amazing job, an amazingly dangerous job in Vietnam as a special group that would go in when there was some sort of a firefight and combat and, you know, Marines were surrounded or something, they would they would call on Mr. Taylor and his buddies to get things straightened out. And uh, they certainly had their successes, uh, but they had their failures because his platoon and platoon was wiped out several times. And uh, to the point where this 50 man unit went, went to, down to 50 men. And uh, Bill, I want you to tell us about the, your specific unit in Vietnam, what they did, and uh, I'd love to hear about it. Well, first of all, thank you for uh, letting me be on your program, and uh, I sure would like to acknowledge you for uh, all the the efforts you did in creating the wall, and uh, also for uh, your project uh, Renew, uh, uh, you know, getting rid of the landmines in, in Vietnam, and, uh, you know, that there, there's still people dying in Vietnam, uh, small children walking around. They have certain areas that there's landmines and booby traps all over the place. So I acknowledge you for that. And uh, I was in 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines, Charlie Company, and uh, I happened to be in the 2nd Platoon. Uh, what it was is I uh, ended up going over to Vietnam and ended up in Okinawa. Um, I met with the 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines in Okinawa. They brought the Marine unit from Quezon and uh, it was, it was pretty well, you know, uh, th there wasn't a lot of men still in, in the unit. The, the equipment was bad and they wanted to use this particular unit as a special reactionary force. It was the newest weapon to uh, combat the North Vietnamese and, and uh, the Viet Cong. So, we trained in Okinawa for about a month and then ended up um, on, on the USS Okinawa. We ran into a, a Typhoon Violet going to Vietnam. And, uh, you know, that, that ride to Vietnam was just the beginning of, of an, incredible, uh, an incredible journey into, um, into war. Um, first operation was Operation Beaver Cage. And uh, that's uh, actually also called Operation Union. And uh, we went in there. That was our first taste of battle. And, uh, you know, when you first go into battle, you train for battle and, you, you know, you go through the actions of being, you know, people shooting at you. But it's really different when you actually hear the sounds of an AK-47 coming at you. And uh, so we ran into uh, the this unbelievable unit. Uh, they had several battalions, Marines. We were circling uh, this particular unit of uh, North Vietnamese and Viet Cong. And uh, we were in one hell of a struggle and a battle. A lot of guys were killed. And I talk about it in the, in, uh, in the book. Uh, after that particular op operation, we went through a series of operations until July of 1967. Uh, that was around the 4th of July. And Operation Buffalo Beaver Cage. A lot of the Vietnam vets know about that particular operation. A lot of vets were killed. 
1st Battalion, 9th Marines was completely wiped out in, in that particular. Uh, it was one full company was wiped out. 250 men. There's only a few left. And uh, we were the reactionary force. And they were bringing in other battalions in from uh, all around uh, Dong Ha and, and the areas around. And we, that's what we we came in and flew in uh, right into the DMZ. And, uh, you know, we had these great leaders, these great guys, these uh, men who had experience. And uh, we ran into the artillery from the North Vietnamese artillery. Mm. You know, I, I didn't know that they had artillery. Mm. Yeah, they had uh, artillery on the other side of the DMZ shooting at us along with rockets and mortars and i mean they snipers everything you can think of uh and that was in july uh our our platoon sergeant was killed along with one of the squad leaders and you know that's very heartfelt because here's a man that you think will you know make it through vietnam and help us through and all of a sudden he's gone uh my squad leader took over the platoon and uh, in August, which was, you know, the, a month later, we were on Operation Cochise and uh, on Operation Cochise, another big, uh, you know, unit of North Vietnamese and and Vietnam. They were trying to take over the uh, Quezon Valley and uh, they wanted to get food. And we went in there and we destroyed their food. We, you know, went through the different villages, uh, but they were ambushing us. They didn't they didn't go as a complete group to come at us they did is distribute themselves and uh and uh you know haystacks and tree lines and stuff like that mm. and that's when my platoon walked directly into uh an ambush and and on that one i mean we were trapped and they were using us for bait and uh our lieutenant kept on sending squad after squad to try to help us out and they kept on getting wiped out finally i mean uh you know I escaped from the tree line and, and one other, there was two of us had escaped from it. We were hiding behind a rice paddy dike and uh, we, we got out and, you know, I got wounded in the arm. Uh, it was like the whole thing was very traumatic. And, and I talk about it in depth in the book. Mm -hmm. And then uh, September came along, we got new guys and now we have an, and, and on Cochise, the squad, the, the platoon sergeant, who was my squad leader, he ended up getting killed at on that particular operation. So then they had to put a new guy in charge. And every time they put a new guy in charge, he didn't quite have as much savvy as the last one. Mm. And, and it just got worse from there. So we ended up on Operation Medina. And uh, that was in October. And uh, on the first day, we were we were going into the the Highland Forest, and uh, another battalion was sweeping towards us. There's a book written about it, and uh, it's called uh, I think Operation Medina. Anyway, so we were the blocking force, and uh, the first night, you know, we had a brand new com company commander. Uh, he wasn't really good. Uh, he didn't set the lines up right according to the way we were used to. Oh, and uh, he came in from supply, unfortunately, and uh, we got totally overrun. I mean, wiping out the lines. We got wiped out again. The third platoon uh, was really wiped out this time, but I was attached. To, I was on the lines connected to third platoon. 
And um, so that was a horrible battle. And we're still going on operations. We're getting new guys who don't know what they're doing. Uh, things are, are going along. And uh, that was October, November. Uh, we ended up uh, going to, uh, we, we ended up uh, going to uh, a place called A3 uh, in Contien. It's part of the McNamara line. And uh, we had to stand lines for, for the guys and relieve the guys that were on the lines that had been completely, you know, they were getting hit every single day and they finally were able to get out of there. And so we ended up in this horrible base with nothing but dirt, no more. There was no, nothing you could see green around because it had been hit so much. And uh, I remember saying to myself, you know, God, it just couldn't get worse than this. Yeah. And that's when the rain started. <laughs> I mean, the monsoon hit us and I literally froze. I'm from Chicago. I literally froze in my in my foxhole, freezing at night, shaking because you're wet from morning till night and you can't get rid of the wetness around you. All you had is a poncho, but you're walking around, you're sweating in it and you're there, you know, week after week and you're eating sea rations. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty rough. And then in December, which uh, now we're getting towards the end of my tour, uh, we ended up building a base called C4 right on the ocean, uh, just south of the DMZ. And uh, we were we were stopping the infiltration of the North Vietnamese. We had flat out stopped them and they were getting mad at us. Uh, so they we ended up in one huge battle just south of the DMZ. And that was on January 19th, just after Tet. And, uh, yeah, again, my platoon was pretty well, you know, massacred. And, uh, uh, that's when I got my third purple heart. And, uh, uh, you know, I was supposed to leave in February and, uh, I ended up, uh, just the beginning of February. I thought they were calling me in to do a patrol in the DMZ and which was, just terrifying me to death. I was the only one left from the original platoon. And uh, the, the captain called me in and he said, you're going home. And I, and I got to tell you, I, I just about cried when I, when I heard I was going home. I, I mean, there were so many times they thought I would die. It was unbelievable. But, you know, the Marines needed help. They, they just didn't have the equipment. They didn't have, um, they just didn't have what, what, the government should have provided us back then. I mean, we had our meals were from the Korean War. Uh, I mean, the 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 M16s jammed on us constantly from my entire tour of duty. It, they, were, they were the worst, absolutely the worst. Did you ever see anybody actually die because their M16 wouldn't work? Oh, absolutely. There was a lot of guys that died because, you know, you, you knew they didn't work because they were had them taken apart. I mean, you know, you're not in the middle of a battle and taking your M16 apart. And, uh, you know, we, we've seen a lot of action. We've seen a lot of, uh, you know, I remember when we first got there, we never got to see. All we saw was glimpses, you know, mm -hmm. like a, someone in black running yes. uh, by the, the by the end of my tour in the DMZ. I mean. They were out there. They wanted to surround us. They wanted to kill us. They, they were dedicated and determined soldiers. But, you know, the ones that came at us, I noticed that they didn't have the sharpness of the ones 
that were previous. It was like these were a bunch of new guys and they were just like their 18 year olds and they didn't want to die either. I see. Can you tell our listeners what it did to your brain being uh, exposed to that much death and destruction and killing? What does it in eight? How does an 18 year old kid just uh, say, okay, I finished with the Marine Corps, now I'll go down one with my life? What about PTSD? Tell us about that. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I think all Vietnam veterans have PTSD and uh, some did battles like I was in and there was others that were in rear areas. But, you know, they still got hit with, uh, you know, mortars and rockets and they seen people die. Uh, they saw the the effects of what happened to people. And, uh, you know, that was it was really traumatic uh, coming home. And I remember everything seemed so strange. Everybody looked different. Nothing was the same. And uh, inside me, there was some bit of a, like something rumbling, like an anger and a frustration. And uh, with me, survivor's guilt, I had survivor's guilt really bad. And uh, I just uh, had a difficult time with the survivor's guilt. Uh, I mean, um, but I noticed my PTSD has evolved over the years. I mean, I'm, I, I didn't know what it was. And of course they never, they didn't know what it was. I mean, nobody knew, knew what PTSD was. Hmm. And then all of a sudden people started coming out with this post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, I remember the Agent Orange when it did the same thing. I remember I've got tumors all over my body, uh, all fatty tumors, but not just massive amounts of Tumors, they keep coming and popping, you know, here and there on my body. I have one now wrapped around my spine, and I'm going to have to have something done with that. But, uh, you know, I, I look at the tumors as if they were uh, one of the doctors at the VA had given me a scenario, which I accept. And the accept is uh, the, the Agent Orange lays dormant in your fat cells. And as it lays there, your body has a natural ability to try to protect itself. And so what it does, it, it encapsulates these bits of, of uh, Agent Orange. And so I look at it as a blessing more than as a, uh, as a horrible thing. Yeah. Well, I think you've really been a great example to a lot of people. And, I, and, and with your book, uh, I, I look at it and I say full automatic 13 months in Vietnam. I hear your stories and uh, and I just say to myself, as you said in the book, was it worth it? Well, I don't know whether it was worth it or not, but it was really important at the time. Our country's leaders really felt that we had to stop communism in Vietnam and we certainly tried. Uh, but the <laughs> the end of the story is if you're looking for a nice place to go on vacation and play golf, Go to Vietnam, stay at a nice Hilton hotel. You can stay at the Marriott, uh, nice French hotels, very good food. You get Australian beef, uh, do a couple rounds of golf and, you know, uh, hang around the bar for a couple hours. <laughs> well, I, I did it a different way. I went back and uh, went to the battle sites where the, 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 where the memories of the nightmares of my, my, it's in my psyche forever. Oh. And I went back to those places and I was able to finally get closure. Yeah. And uh, it was it was uh, good to go back to Vietnam. I actually met 
a North Vietnamese. What's funny is my son was with me and several other guys were in my unit and uh, my son met somebody. We're, we're in the, can you imagine we're in the Ashaw Valley and uh, we're at the base of Hamburger Hill and there's a little village there. And that's where we stopped for the night. And uh, my son goes out and meets some Vietnamese guy who says they're going to have a jam session across the street in this Quonson hut. And I go, what the, you know, where does this happen? So we went across the street to the Quonson hut and, and uh, there was all these Vietnamese men and they were sitting in there and there was, what this was, was a little relay spot for people where they could stop and have a drink and then take off and go back North or South. So it was like a, a little spot for people, like a little bar. And uh, so we sat there and we sat singing songs with these Vietnamese men. And there's a guy next to me, he looked like an American Indian. He had long black hair all the way down, down to the bottom and the bottom of his uh, right to the bottom of his, uh, where his belt line was. And I'm, I'm looking at him, but this guy's pretty old. And he asked the, uh, our interpreter, what are these guys doing here? And she said, well, these were the Marines that fought here in 1967 and 1968. And he looked at us like, wow. And then he started talking to her. And then she told us he, he was the Viet Cong who fought there in 67 and 68. But, but he wanted us to know that if he had known us then, that, we would, that it was our countries that were at war, that he would have been sitting there drinking with us in 67 and 68 instead of fighting with us. So that, that was just an amazing story. We have it all on tape. And it's another story in itself. By the way, I just want to let you also know that um, On Full Automatic has been on uh, Amazon's number one uh, bestseller list for 26 weeks now. Uh, 101 reviews and 864 ratings, which the ratings are, uh, you know, mostly are five star and mostly five star ratings. Um, Everyone's got to go out there and get a copy of On Full Automatic. I mean, I did. 13 months in Vietnam. It's the most interesting story of, uh, of trauma at that young age. And it kind of has a happy ending in, in many ways. And uh, your trip to Vietnam is very fascinating. We want to thank you for being a part of our program today. And we look forward to seeing you in person, maybe at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial uh, soon. Day or something. Well, God Thank bless you. you and God bless America. God wanted you alive for a reason. <laughs> to write the book, right. To write this book, yeah. <laughs> right. And the movie, too. <laughs> and the coming movie, right. And uh, thank you so much for having me on your, your uh, podcast. My pleasure.